0: Today we are starting a new series called Back Together, and we kicked it off last week uh, with the last sermon of the Eyewitness series by talking about the story of the Apostle Paul and how he was transformed by the gospel from a persecutor of the church to a, an expert in bringing people together. And we talked about how important that is because as Christians, we are called to be part of that same ministry of reconciliation. But also, right now, this is a season in the life of the church and in the life of our world when we especially need people to be putting things back together. And so, as I was preparing for this sermon series— Uh, My family and I, we went down to California in the week after Easter to uh, visit my brother and his family and and the rest of the family that we have down there because he was about to ship out in the Navy, and he got me hooked on Rubik's Cubes. I know I'm about 35 years late to the show, right? and I never really tried to do Rubik's cubes before, but as I learned to do them, and I'm still not very—I I, I had to use the instructions if I was going to get this done in time after, for second service, uh, in between services. But um, as I learned how to put them together, I realized that this is a really great illustration of, of how our lives get messed up and our communities get messed up, and how we learn to put them back together. So. This, there is there's a certain beauty to a solved Rubik's Cube, right? Uh, you know, if you're, if you're uh, a bit OCD, it's nice to have all the colors really in the right place and everything looks clean and neat. And maybe this is what your life looked like in February of 2020 or something close to that, right? Relatively put together. And then COVID hit. And then it lasted longer than a week right like nobody realized how long it was going to last and then they shut down schools and then they did the mask mandate and then you remember this whole state tried to burn down that one time And then there was an election season that lasts all year now. And then there was an election that was contentious. And then there was an insurrection. And then there was the ice storm that actually cut out the power to our building. We also lost power like twice since then because something else. And, And the result of it is our lives and our communities look like this, right? They're just mixed up. They're just in things are all in the wrong places. And in some cases, this kind of division is, is more of a spatial thing, like our congregation looks like this because we have you here in second service, we have first service, we have those of you watching online, and we have some who haven't been able to join us in any of those ways. So we have like four different parts of the congregation. Um, in other instances in our lives, we have experienced actual you know, conflict and, and real antagonism and division in that way. But all of us, in some way or another, are experiencing this. And as Christians, we are called to be God's agents in putting this back together. And the question is, how do we begin to put this back together? Because before I started learning the art of solving Rubik's Cubes, if you had handed me one, one of these, I, I would have been lost. You know, I would have tried, okay, this. let me make this whole side green. But then I would have realized that the edges of the green side weren't right. So as I try to get the the red side worked out, then I'll, I've messed up the green side. And, you know, I try to, if I focus on one piece at a time, and you have to get it in the right place without messing up the ones you've already got in the right place, and you just, you never get there, right? And But that's not how you solve a Rubik's Cube. And here's where a Rubik's Cube becomes a really great uh, illustration, because to solve a Rubik's Cube, you have to learn steps. The first step Uh, in the method I learned is called the daisy. So you pick the yellow square in the middle and you move it around and and I have to do this while I'm preaching. That's the real test. Uh, And you get it so that you have four white pieces. Oh, no. Four white pieces uh, making a cross around the yellow. Okay. And then you have to line up with the middle piece on the side and flip it around so that you have, well, that was convenient, so that you have a white cross. Okay? Now you have to get the corners in place. And for that, you have to learn a move. So I've got the blue center here. You didn't know you were gonna learn this today, did you? And I turn it so that the the white corner piece that's got blue on it is in that corner, and then I I do this. It's called a trigger. That was a left trigger. So if you memorize the move, you don't really have to think about it. Right? So now I got to get this piece there, I go up, over, down, that's a trigger, but once you learn how to do it, you can do it pretty quickly, and you don't really have to think about it so that you could, um, oh no, what did I do, there we go, okay, no, I'm back on track, I'm back on track, oh ye of little faith, there, bottom level is solved, right, but then, why, thank you, thank you, first service didn't give me a round of applause congratulations, you're now my favorite service. <laughs> oh that's division. that's not good. Then to get the uh, to get the second level done, you have to learn a whole different set of tricks where I line this red and blue piece up and I move it over and I do that and then I have to do a double I have to do the trigger both ways and now that's in the right place. And then I have to find the next corner piece and let's see da-da-da, da-da-da. like that. And one piece left. Can you do it Well, talking? You'll notice I've, I'm not really saying anything of substance now because I'm focusing on the... There, now I've got two levels done. Now the third level takes like five more steps. The third level is the hardest. So I'm not going to do that while y'all are watching. Maybe by the end of the series, I can solve one of these while preaching. But the point is, that's two levels. And each level is a little bit harder, a little more advanced. But how did I do that? I did that by learning steps. I didn't know how to get the whole thing in one go but I knew what the next step was and I had learned the moves so that now I can do a left trigger and a right trigger without even really thinking about it and that that's how people you know the world record for solving this is uh, 4 seconds from completely messed up to solved in a little over 4 seconds that's a person who knows the steps. I believe that reconciliation is like that. If, I were, if you were to ask me, how are we going to put the world back together in one go? I don't know. But what, and scripture doesn't tell us, here's the one fix that will solve everything. Scripture teaches us the steps to take. Scripture teaches us to handle what we're given. I don't have to be able to fix the world. I'm called to create reconciliation in my sphere. And here's the first step. And here's another thing to do. And here's another thing to do. And as we learn those steps and those virtues and those practices, we're able to put things together one block at a time. Now, there's no absolute fixes because we have free will, which means that human beings are capable of refusing reconciliation. But 2,000 years of Christian history has taught us that the gospel, the power of the gospel and the message of the gospel, has the power to reconcile people in amazing ways. And so if we're going to take on this ministry, I'm not asking you to figure out how to solve the whole world's problems. I'm, we're going to learn how to solve the next problem in front of us. And we're going to learn the next step after that, and the next step after that, and, and we're going to see what God does through us as we learn what Scripture teaches us about reconciliation. So the way we're going to do that is we're going to focus on the writings of Paul and the things that Paul wrote to the churches that he was ministering to. And we're not going to do them in chronological order. We're also not going to do them in the order they're in in your Bible. We're going to do them in the level of proficiency of the people that he's writing to. Basically, we're going to do them in uh, starting with the churches that need to solve the first level, and we're going to move into churches that need to solve the second level, and we're going to end with the church that has it the most together, and it, and Paul is teaching that how to put together the top pieces and the most advanced moves. So that means that we're going to start by looking at Paul's letter to Titus. It's one of the pastoral letters, meaning it's Paul writing to a leader of a church, not a congregation, and he is teaching Titus how to lead the churches that he's been put in charge of, and the principle that we're going to be focusing on as the, the entryway into this uh, art of reconciliation is self-control. So we'll start by looking at the situation in the churches that Paul and Titus are discussing. Then we're going to look at how Paul presents self-control as a solution to that situation. And finally, we're going to look at what it means when we realize that self-control is where reconciliation starts, what that teaches us about the nature of reconciliation and how we go about doing it in a biblical way. So let's start by looking at the situation in the churches where Titus has been called. Paul writes to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. So Titus was a problem solver for Paul. There's a couple other places where he's mentioned when there's a real problem Paul entrusts it to Titus. Timothy is another one of these guys, an expert problem solver and reconciler. So he has him stay in Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea that's got a bunch of towns on it, and it's a, it's a, big, it's a big shipping port, and he tells Titus, I need you to put things in order. Specifically, the first thing he gives him instructions about is putting elders in charge. What that tells us about the churches in Crete is that they're young, because they don't have elders yet. That's one of the things that Paul, in his missionary journeys, makes sure to do before he leaves, is make sure that they have wise, godly leadership in place for when he goes. Like, he'll, he'll preach the gospel, bring people together into a congregation, and appoint elders so that they have their own leadership. Crete doesn't have, the Cretan churches don't have that yet. So, the Cretan church was young and lacked wise leadership. In reality, I say the Cretan church. There, there were probably a, gr- a group of house churches, you know, house churches, multiple house churches in each town. Uh, but as a group on this island, they were young as new church plants, and they lacked wise leadership. That creates a problem. A lack of wise leadership is is a problem, especially in a very young church. And we see why in this next passage. Here's how he describes. The, the problem in the church that he's talking about. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Wow, that's harsh, right? And that's in Scripture. <laughs> That I mean, yeah. That and now there's a bit of comedy in there, I think, because he's saying all Cretans are liars, and a Cretan told me that. Do you see the logical paradox in there? A Cretan said we're all liars, um, but there is a point that even the pagans think the Cretans are especially bad. They're all Cretans. Um, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He doesn't pull any punches. And essentially what he's saying, the problem that is going on in Crete is that these are young churches, that means that all of these people were only recently became Christians and before that they were raised in a very ungodly culture, a culture that even among the pagans was noted to be especially, uh, they lied all the time, they would do anything for money, they had a lot of mercenaries. Uh, And they just had a a really corrupt culture, even by pagan standards. And the thing is, when you become a Christian, it doesn't automatically flip a switch and everything changes, right? Young churches, uh, a a young church plant in a community like this is full of people who are very young Christians, baby Christians, and most of their habits, most of their beliefs, most of what they know and do and their instincts are still very worldly, just like everybody as they come into faith. And so that creates a problem when there's a lack of wise leadership because your your church is essentially more unchristian than Christian in some important ways. So the Cretan church was infected by a local culture of greed, deception, and debauchery. That behavior was going on in the church because they didn't they didn't have anybody to explain to them the difference between godly behavior and ungodly behavior, other than Titus and, and so you know, like they didn't. We skipped over the part where Paul gives Titus the list of virtues to look for in elders. They didn't have passages like that because they hadn't been written yet, right? And so they have to learn what does godliness look like. And that ignorance creates an opening for another problem that Paul identifies there, which is that there were people who took advantage of it. There were people who came in and started teaching false doctrines for monetary gain. Basically, they came in, and they would tell people whatever got the biggest collection at the end, right? They would come in, and I'll I'll teach any gospel that will get me money in the plate, right? So whatever you want to hear, they probably didn't say it this way, but essentially their approach was, whatever gets me the biggest collection, that's what I'm going to preach, and the problem with that, well, it's always a problem to be motivated by money, but especially in this case is that these people don't really know the gospel very well. And so they're the last people that should be making the determination about, you know, what is gospel and what's not based on their own instincts, right? And so if you're going to tell a bunch of baby Christians whatever they most want to hear, I think we can all testify that we most want to hear things that aren't really in the gospel because the gospel is hard. Right, the gospel is challenging. The gospel asks a lot of us, and so what happens is all these false teachers come in and they teach things that people want to hear. The problem is what they want to hear is the wrong things, and it's creating all these problems. And it's not only is it false doctrine, but it's also divisive. It's tearing families apart. So false teachers were exploiting their ignorance and weakness by teaching divisive errors for money. So you can imagine that these are congregations that are just in chaos. Nobody really, either nobody knows up and down, or they all are on the same page, but they've mixed it up. They're all moving together in the wrong direction because there are these people taking advantage of the situation. So how does a church in this kind of a situation get turned around? How do we get out of this kind of a problem and get back on the right path? What does Titus need to do Well, that's what we're going to look at now. I'm going to read a chunk of uh, instructions that Paul gives to Titus. And you're going to see a common theme in the instructions that he gives. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger women to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good, all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're going to take a little bit to do that, but first things first, the common theme in each of these categories is self-control. He tells older men to be self-controlled. He tells older women to teach younger women self-control, which means older women need to be self-controlled. He tells Timothy to set an example for the young men by being self-controlled. And the instructions he gives to the bond servants or to the slaves require self-control. So the the theme and the linchpin for all of these instructions is self-control. Because self-control, when you understand what it is, you understand that it has to be the first step. If you don't have self-control, none of the other instructions matter. Why? Because in Greek, the word that he's using for self-control, it's basically the idea that you have your passions and your principles, and you face a choice where they disagree, you choose your principles. That's self-control. It means it's right-mindedness, choosing with your brain. It means choosing what is consistent with what you believe, what your intentions are, what your plans are. That's self-control. So, for instance... I face a daily battle of self-control whenever I go into Jerry's office because Jerry has a bowl of chocolate. And a year, a little over a year ago, I gave a sermon on gluttony that really convicted me. So I go in there and I have a battle of of self-control because my principles tell me if I eat that chocolate, it will not send the number on the scale in the right direction, right? The, The number on the scale will not go the way I want it to, and that never changes. There's no question about that. I never walk in some days and think, well, maybe chocolate will help me lose weight. But I look at the chocolate and I see, oh, he's got Twix today. Oh, he put in some Kit Kat. God forbid he should put in Reese's, then it's over. right?" But I have a desire that makes me want that candy and, and basically choose that satisfaction over my plans. I never change what I want to happen in my life or what my, what my desires are for the future, that never changed, but I just was more focused on my passions, my desires, than my principles. So that's a battle of self-control. Self-control means acting on principle, not appetite or impulse. Now, self-control is not a uniquely Christian virtue. Like, Christians weren't the only ones to talk about it. Paul is not introducing something new. In fact, he's using a concept that was very common in Greek philosophy. What he's doing with it, though, is he is applying it to a set of principles that are different from Greek philosophers, he's also setting applying it to a set of principles that are different from our 21st century Western principles too, and that's why there are some things that he says in there that we're kind of uncomfortable with him saying, right? When he says women be submissive to your teach women to be submissive to their husbands when he says, slaves, be submissive to your masters, that's not quite what we're most comfortable with him saying, right? We certainly wish he had said, masters, set your slaves free, period, right? we certainly wish he had, you know, used different language when talking about, or it would be more comfortable if he had used different language in talking about how spouses relate to each other. And that's because he's using a different set of principles than what we're bringing to it. And this is very important for us to understand. First of all, let's unpack why he's saying these things that we're uncomfortable with, okay? And, it is, and the mistake that Christians have made in the past is to think that he's saying these things, for instance, to slaves or to women because that is their proper place. And he is identifying the proper place for each one in God's order. That's not what's happening, Have you ever wondered why he needed to say those things to them when their culture was telling them the same thing? Roman culture was telling wives to submit to their husbands and slaves to submit to their masters. Why did Paul also have to say it? Because at the same time, Paul was telling them, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. He's telling them what the Bible says, which is that we are all made in the image of God, that we are all share that value. And so it's because of the message of the gospel is different from what their culture is hearing that he even needs to tell them how to apply it. And the reason why he needs to give them these directions, seems to be that they hear the message of the gospel, but they don't act it out with self-control. Because this was not the first time that somebody had a message of hope to slaves. There had been three slave rebellions within 150 years of this happening in Rome. People brought messages of hope to slaves, but the way that hope was expressed and was taken on was by violence and by warfare. And so what often happens is, you know, you tell someone, we're all made in the image of God. And they say, hey, if I'm made in the image of God, then why aren't I the master? Can I have a turn as the master? I, I want to be the master. And they they put their personal, you know, their personal journey, their personal need, and, and they, they apply that. And that's where we get these revolutions and these violent outbursts that have happened throughout history when people want to you know, bring liberation, and what they do is they just flip the, the direction of the oppression. So what's happening in this case is Paul is saying, no, no, remember the goal. The goal is not to invert the masters and the slaves, the goal is to Bring the message of the gospel to everyone. That means that we need to do it in a way that brings everyone to the same level. It's, we're, we need to do it in a way that doesn't lose the husbands and the masters. Because the long term goal of saving all of humanity is what needs to be in sight. And what we found throughout history is that the message of the gospel does create large-scale liberation. Amazing things have changed in the world because of Christianity and slavery has been outlawed and and things have happened on a large scale that are more powerful than a single violent revolution. So you'll notice when Paul gives them these instructions to be self-controlled, it's never because this is your place, it's because there's a mission involved. There's a purpose involved. There's a focus, a set of principles, gospel principles. Notice the, the logic, the, the justification that he gives in each of these instances. He says, do this so that the word of God may not be reviled, that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, that in every way they may ad- slaves may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's all purpose, mission-focused principles. It's not do this because it's where you belong. It's do this because you're on a mission, and this is how we accomplish the mission. So for Christians, self-control means acting on the principles of the gospel, not our desires. When I hear that I'm made in the image of God, it may make me want to put myself at the top of the pile because why not? Even if everybody else is made in the image of God, I'm eligible. Why can't I be on the top of the pile? But that's not the goal. Me on top is not the goal. Jesus on top is the goal. Now. That's self control, which is actually a pretty simple concept, right? The next question, as we understand it as Christians, is how important is self control? Is it a big deal? Does it really matter? We especially need to talk about this as uh, 21st century Protestants because for about 500 years now, we've been dealing with this idea that the gospel is not really about what you do. It's just about getting into the good place. And what you do is kind of extra credit. It's kind of irrelevant. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. And actually, I've had people tell me that you know, they became a Christian when they realized it wasn't about what I do, that what I do doesn't matter. The problem is that's not, that's not the gospel the way Paul teaches it. And it's emphatically not how he's going to teach it as he continues in this line of argument. This is my favorite presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. Here's what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Pause. So the grace of God has appeared to bring us salvation, and the grace of God has appeared to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and the grace of God has appeared to train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's what it has come for. Okay? Okay. Then he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and who gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You know the most common phrase in the book of Titus? It's good works. He says it six times in three chapters. And in fact, the exclamation point on his criticism of Cretan culture was that they were unfit for good works. Like, that's the biggest problem is that because of all the corruption and all of the ignorance and the division, they can't do what God has called them to do. See, what's happening here is he's saying, Jesus didn't just come to save you and put you on his trophy shelf. He came to save you because he has something to do with you. He came to save you to make you into a person he can use for his mission, for his purpose. So what that means is we need to be able to make decisions to serve the purpose. Self-control is not extra credit. It is essential to God's purpose for his people. Because if God is going to use you to achieve the mission of the gospel, you need to be able to choose the mission of the gospel over your own passions and appetites and desires. That is a hard thing to do. That means that in order for you to be able to serve God, you need to be able to face a position where God is calling you to give something that you want to hoard and you choose to give it where God is calling you to forgive something that you don't want to forgive and you choose to forgive it. If God is going to use you for the kingdom, you have to have the capacity to choose the kingdom over yourself. That's why it starts with self-control because if you don't have self-control, if you don't have this kind of discipline, you can't actually make the decisions necessary to live out the mission God has for you. So this is not extra credit. It is essential to the work that you're called to do. Okay, so it's essential but is it something how often do i have to use self control like can i are there times when i don't have to where i can kind of just let it, let it go and i can really tell that person what i think of them and just and you know what what are the safe zones where i can just unleash on people well, i think that's kind of what paul gets at in the next section here's what he says remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling to be gentle And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, when I was putting the sermon together, at first I thought this was just more self control talk, more virtue, just another list of virtues. And I thought about just reading it with the previous passage uh, in chapter two. But I think he's saying something different here. And he tees off with something that was even harder before, or even harder during the first century than it is today, which is be submissive to the rulers and authorities. It is part of the American condition to just be, to, to struggle with that, right? In other nobody's happy, right? And all of us have, have had that moment where we realize it is going to be hard for me to submit to this current administration, this current, per, like whatever it is, all of us have been unhappy at that, right? Totally different level if you're a first century Christian. Paul is talking about the authorities that will eventually have him executed, and he's telling them, submit to them. That would have to be the hardest people to submit to, a pagan emperor trying to destroy the church, and you're supposed to submit to this power structure and not lead a rebellion against it. Then he goes on, and notice the language that he uses. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for how many good works? Every good work. Not 90%, not 50%. Every good work. To speak evil of how many people? No one. How many of us do that on social media? Speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards some people. Show courtesy toward the people we know, perfect courtesy toward all people. He is giving us no out. He's giving us no exceptions. Self-control is not optional. We are called to use self-control with all people in all situations. Why? Why are we called to use? Why aren't there exceptions? Why don't I get to say, yeah, but that person is so wrong. Like, this is a special situation. They are extra wrong. They really need to be corrected. They've really offended me. They no longer deserve my self-control and my restraint. What they have done is so bad. Why don't we get to say that? Well, here's where Paul delivers the, the gut punch, okay? Here's what he says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our ways in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul, in chapter two, he was, or chapter one, he was kind of ganging up on the Cretes, right? Like piling it on Cretans. And as, if, as a Jew, he could say, hey, they're the worst of the Gentiles. I'm the best of the Jews. But instead, what he says here, to wrap it all together, he says, hey,